Welcome to Liquid Church Media. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins. We'll all have a moment where we're faced with a decision to make if we want to risk everything and to jump and to live fully. And once we do, that journey and that spiral will actually teach us more about ourselves than we would have ever known if we'd played it safe. As women, when we take on all these roles and all these responsibilities, we lose sight of what makes us uniquely us. The last few years, I just began to question, is this the rest of my life? There was this underlining angst that just kept asking, is there something more? Often it feels indulgent to say, why am I here? Does my life matter? Does my life have meaning? But it's actually just giving worthiness to the creation that God gave all of us. We look in the mirror and we wonder, have we missed this? Do we have calling in our own lives? Will we find it? Is it really there? But we'll never know. We'll never really see the fullness of what God intended if we stay safe. Because we all need a free fall to teach us how to fly. Good morning, everybody. I want to welcome you to Liquid. If it's your first time, I'm Pastor Tim. Thrilled that you're here today. Hey, we need to give a special welcome to our brothers and sisters joining us in New Brunswick and Nutley Church Online on the radio. Can we welcome them, guys? Thanks so much for tuning in. Thrilled you guys are with us today. Um, we have a special treat for all the women in our church today. Rebecca Lyons is here, and she is the author of Free Fall to Fly, A Breathtaking Journey Towards a Life of Meaning. It is a powerful and honest book that just came out, extremely uh, vulnerable and, and heartfelt. Um, I just finished reading it myself. She's very candid about the struggles that all women face at times as they try to juggle multiple roles at home, as caregivers, wives, executives, you know, in the workplace, artists. And we're going to hear from Rebecca in just a little bit. But uh, this is exciting uh, for us uh, to host Rebecca at Liquid. How many of you enjoyed hearing from my wife last week? Was she, was that great? Was that right? Thank you to my wife, Colleen. Uh, yeah, I know. Thank, some, some people were like, I liked her preaching better than yours. Thank you for that. I appreciate the encouragement. Uh, but that is one of my goals for this series, Love Doctor, because we're taking this kind of real honest look at male-female relationships and the struggles that we all kind of navigate through in the 21st century. And as, as a pastor, I want to make sure we kind of have a holistic perspective on this because I can articulate some of the issues that men wrestle with, but it's important we hear firsthand from the women in our spiritual family. So today, guys, lean in because you're going to learn a tongue. Uh, this, this is a book that's not just for women only. Rebecca is particularly, I think, going to give us guys a glimpse into the interior life of a woman's heart and some of the struggles that she has overcome in her journey, including anxiety, uh, depression, panic attacks, which obviously impact your relationship with God and others. Now, 
before Rebecca comes out, I kind of want to set the table for this because today's going to be a little bit different than usual. If you're just visiting our church, typically I, I teach from the Bible for about 40 minutes or so. And in fact, we have a free CD for you today, all our campuses of the kickoff message. You married the wrong person. You can pick that up at the Welcome Center after the service is over. But this morning, I'm going to be interviewing Rebecca about her book after we take a look at a passage in the Bible, because Rebecca is a follower of Jesus Christ, and her story really captures the journey of faith that's honest about the struggles that confront modern women who are trying to live faithfully before God, but also pursue their calling in their lives. Because right now there's a little lie that I think 21st century culture feeds uh, women that says, hey, you can have it all if you just try hard, just try harder. You can land the perfect spouse. You can be the model wife and mother. You can be domestically efficient. You can be professionally astute. You can be a great decorator and homemaker and uh, got to be physically attractive and emotionally stable. Hopefully you're not high maintenance, don't have too many needs of your own. And you have to keep all of these plates spinning and also then have time to connect deeply with the heart of God and others. And as any woman who's honest knows, it ain't possible, (laughs) but something better is. And so I want to frame this scripturally to show you what we're talking about. In the Gospel of Luke, you can open your Bible there to Luke 10. Jesus has this encounter with two women. They are sisters, in fact, um, named Martha and Mary. We don't know if they were twin sisters, but they reflected two sides of the same coin that a lot of women wrestle with. It's this tension between doing and being, doing and being, Martha and Mary. So let's just look at this quickly in Luke 10 and look at how Jesus speaks into this tension that these two women are feeling. It says, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was, what's the word here? Distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. And she came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? tell her to help me, right? I mean, this is, Martha had a long to-do list. Does anybody identify with this? Task-oriented person, okay? And she's overwhelmed. And she kind of went through life in this perpetually distracted state. She had domestic responsibilities. If you've ever had company over your house, like for dinner, and you have to get the house ready, you know how this goes. In, in, In the Lucas home, if company's coming over, Colleen, who is very gentle and sweet, turns into a field general, uh, she's like, she starts giving out all. She's like, don't no, put the Legos away. Tim, you know, vacuum the living room. I want the table clear, you know, and the pillows fluffed. And, you know, honey, light, not fluff them this way, fluff them this way. Uh, you know, honey, light the grill. And, um, and it's so funny because we hide everything in the closets. And there's, a, and there's a magic spray called Pledge. As long as we put Pledge on it, it's clean. It's like Pledge, you know, the dining room table, Pledge the dog, just make this place smell lemon. Because my wife wants everything perfect when, when guests arrive because the home is a reflection of her heart, you know. And I'm like, you know, relax. It's Pastor Mike coming up. The guy wears flip-flops to work, you know. It's like, but that's what she does for ordinary people. She gets all Martha, Martha Stewart, okay. Luke doesn't tell us Martha's last name, but I want to imagine when she realizes the guest for dinner is going to be Jesus. You think that turns up the anxiety a bit, Right. Jesus is coming. Look busy, you know, everybody. Does he like fish or filet mignon? Should we serve a wine or what? Well, you know what? Just put out water. He'll turn it into wine. You know, there's this like, you can understand why Martha's distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She was a doer with a task list a mile long. And a lot of modern women can identify with that. That's one side of the coin. Those who find their identity in doing. 
On the other hand, her sister Mary was content just being. It says she sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. She's a model of rest and repose and reflection. And I appreciate this because usually in our house, it's the guy who kicks back and gets in trouble, right? You know, my family will come visit and Colleen's putting together this, you know, gourmet meal. And and where are the guys? We're all on the couch, you know, watching football, you know, and she's like a little help, please. And and, and must be nice just sitting there, Mary, listening to Jesus. Uh, Can someone set the table? And it's funny because Martha's like a little on edge. She's like an A-type personality. And she actually kind of lights into Jesus. She goes, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself. Tell her to help me, Jesus. That's an A-type personality, right, when you talk to Jesus this way. And I love his response because Jesus says, Martha Stewart, Martha Stewart, uh, <laughs> you're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what's better and it will not be taken away from her. Two sisters, two sides of the same coin. One woman defined by doing, domestic responsibilities, task list. The other defined by being. Mary is this picture of reflection and serenity sitting at the feet of Jesus. She's comfortable in her own skin. She is open-hearted and receptive to what the Lord wants to say to her. And the truth is, a lot of women in this room, in our church, struggle with this tension between doing and being. In fact, we all struggle with this. It's not a gender-specific battle. At Liquid, we have a lot of folks who are young parents or they're caregivers or, 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 you know, for older parents. Many work outside the home, professionals, teachers, doctors, executives. I was talking with one um, young set of parents recently, a new mom who, um, she, they just had their first child, and she's a medical professional. She went through eight years of schooling. I said, you know, how's it going with your newborn? And she said, I can't wait to get back to work so I can rest. You know, like work is easier as professionals, as caregivers, wives, all that. Many women are constantly doing, perpetually harried. And what we see here with Jesus is he's saying it does damage to your soul. It's difficult for a lot of us to just be because we have a lot on our list. Dinner needs to be made, clothes washed, noses wipes. You spend the day making a nice organic meal. And the kid's like, I don't like that. I don't want to eat it, you know. The kids scatter and the, you know, dad jets and she's left to clean up the dishes by herself. Now, men, this is something you need to understand about women. Frustration can then turn inward, like Martha's prayer in verse 40. Lord, don't you care that my sister's left me all alone by myself? Tell her to help me. I feel abandoned, taken for granted. Martha feels anxious. She feels alone. And Jesus just speaks directly to her heart. He says, Martha, you're worried and upset. You're anxious about a lot of stuff. But only one thing's needed. Your sister Mary's chosen what's better and won't be taken from her. In other words, Jesus' reply is that in the midst of our busyness, in these fragmented lives that we lead, there's actually only a couple things, in fact, maybe only one, that can bring the clarity and the peace and the meaning that we all long for. And that's their relationship with Christ, actually stilling the activity, quieting our compulsions long enough to realize that you were created by God on purpose and for a purpose. Not just busyness and activity, but a mission, a God-given calling that he put you on this earth uniquely to fulfill. That as a woman, you have a unique role to play, that God created you with specific talents. Rebecca calls these your birthright gifts that are critical to your role in this life. And central to your identity 
as a daughter of God is actually spending enough time just being still at Jesus' feet, listening to what he's saying. Not what the culture is saying, but what your heavenly father, he has words to speak to you about your value and about your purpose and about your calling in life. So even if you feel alone or abandoned when you're worried or upset, anxiety or depression set in for a season, the reality is that Christ loves you unconditionally. You actually have nothing to prove in his eyes because grace has proven all of it. And that he loves us in our brokenness. And in fact, will meet us there if we're open enough to invite him in for, for healing. Even if a spouse isn't present, Christ is with you and he's the only one who says, I'll never leave you or abandon you or forsake you, even when crisis comes. So this is the big idea, guys. Meaning in our lives is not connected to our doing, but are rather being with Jesus in the midst of our day-to-day responsibilities or whatever season of life we find ourselves in. Our responsibility as followers of Christ is simply to be present and quiet enough to hear God's voice and invite him to bring meaning to our mess. And that's exactly what Rebecca Lyons has done. Rebecca actually grew up in the South, born in Florida, and moved to Georgia when she married her husband, Gabe. And together, they founded Q Ideas, which is a nonprofit organization that equips Christian leaders to engage culture in a winsome way. And she and Gabe were living the dream. I think that's the best way to say it in suburban Atlanta. Comfortable home with their three kids, cul-de-sac cookouts, a cocoon of close friends, and a dream job working at a mega church. But they felt God calling them to actually move to New York City, which you know is a bit of a shift. (laughs) Leaving the sweet, polite South for the mean streets of Manhattan was a jarring transition, to say the least. And the way Rebecca describes it, it was her husband's dream come true, but she went into a bit of a free fall, began suffering panic attacks, crippling anxiety and depression, and she was kind of overwhelmed by all these cultural expectations to be the perfect wife and mother and urban fashionista, and life just kind of caved in on her. And she really kind of lost touch with her identity and her gifts and calling as a daughter of God. And in this very vulnerable memoir of transformation, Rebecca describes how Christ reached in at her lowest moment and she found her wings and really learned how to fly. So would you join me in giving a big liquid welcome to Rebecca Lyons. Rebecca, come on out. Thank you so much. We're so glad that you're here, please. Thrilled that you're here today. Thank you for coming on out. Thank you. And uh, these are for you. Wow, look at these. We got four boxes, right? (laughs) And uh, really what we wanted to do here is I thought we could kind of touch on maybe the four themes of your story because these kind of represent four different key issues that you unpack in in your story, Free Fall to Fly. If you just kind of look right to left, we begin kind of with motherhood, the transition from your full-time career, you were in public relations, then became full-time mom. That's a jarring transition. Uh, Mental illness, history of that in your family, anxiety and depression. I want to touch on that. Media, Rebecca, I was one time, uh, I was hearing Rebecca speak, and she called uh, Facebook uh, middle school for (laughs) 40-year-olds. And how social media puts these (laughs) pressures and expectations, uh, you know, on us. And then finally, meaning, really where where you found that. So maybe if we could just kind of start right to left and tell us a little bit about that transition, because you were working corporate, executive, you know, public relations, Mm -hmm. had your first... Son, Kate, is that him right there? Yes, handsome Kate's in devil. The yep. Tell us a little bit about that transition. Sure. So I never really thought stay-at-home mom, working mom. How will I navigate that? It, I just went to college, had a major, began work, got married, and then thought when the babies came, we would just take one day at a time. 
So by the time I got pregnant with Kate, I, wound up, I was actually working at a church in um, Atlanta, North Point Community Church, <coughs> Andy Stanley's church, and it was very friendly to working moms. I mean, there was a place really right there in the building where we could have our babies and go see them and then go back to our office and have our team and keep going. So I just thought that's what we would do and we would continue. And it was, it was such a flourishing season. I was like, let's do it. Let's, let's, let's have it all. And so uh, Cade, I did not know until the day he was born, six hours later, the doctor came in and said, we see signs of Down syndrome in your baby. And that have, was such a moment because uh, at 39 weeks, everything looked good and was healthy and fine and uh, everything changed. And so six days later, they confirmed that. And by the time Cade was 10 months old, he had eight hours of therapy a week. And I was kind of failing at home and at work because my heart was so torn and I was not navigating it well. And so I went in and just said, I need to be home for right now. This is where I need to be. And so that was this new normal of coming to a house of silence and and still wrestling with even the grieving of of, um, Kate's birth and and life looking different than what I thought Mm -hmm. it might be. Yeah. And so that was kind yeah. of the beginning of a free fall about 12 years ago, I guess. You, d- you describe this. You tell the story about crossing Park Avenue with your three children. You guys know from Manhattan, Park Avenue, right? Like six-lane highway, <laughs> meet in the middle. And it's a right. funny story because right. in the middle of crossing it, Cade decides he doesn't want to go and kind of went boneless. He did. And he laid down on he Park did. Avenue. He literally laid flat in the middle of six lanes of traffic. And, yes. and I, I was laughing as I read the story, but it was, very, yeah, I know, it wasn't funny at the time. That was right. a real crisis moment right. for you. Well, in the book, we'd only been there, I guess I'm writing about it, we'd only been there about two weeks. And there were people that had invited us to this playground. I'm like, friends, kids, we might make some friends. <laughs> and so I was like, Cade, we're going this way today. And this was Friday after every day prior that week, we had gone back home for lunch after this morning um, camp. And so he was not, he was not having it. Mm. He likes order. He likes familiarity. He likes to control like what he knows. Mm-hmm. And this city was enough newness that he's like, no, no, no. I know on every day this week, we've gone back home for lunch, but this day we were going the opposite okay. direction to Central Park and he wasn't going to do it. And we were, con- my kids had already crossed and he's in the middle and he just laid down flat while the what, taxi like, yes down. everyone's just kind of watching like the lights like the crosswalk going <laughs> down 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 and I and he at this point he's about 90 pounds no amount of like picking up dead weight is going to help right. this thing move along right. and I was uh, it, it became a spectacle I have to say and finally we were I was able to drag him to the median where we just kind of like yeah. lived there and it was really a metaphor for my life, where my family was crossing, and they were starting this new season in a new place and a new journey, and Kate and I were resisting. Yeah. You know, he was really representing how I was feeling, and, and, and mm. as he was afraid of this new season and crossing to this new venture, so was mm-hmm. I. And so that was early on in the book, this revelation that my, I was a lot like my son. I didn't want to do something that was new and unknown and scary, and yeah. so it really began this kind yeah. of free fall, if you will, of yeah. introspection and seeing yeah. what, what have we just done? <laughs> yeah. I really appreciate your writing. I'm going to, I want to read you a quote that I, I pulled out of this, uh, Rebecca, that I thought was, it was illuminating. I think a lot of women will identify this. You, you kept notebooks chock full of lists. Listen to this. See if you can identify. Oh, the lists. They turned into volumes, wash hair, mail Christmas photos, try Zumba, make pantry look pretty. Uh, yeah. <laughs> 
Each item I added made me feel as though I had a purpose. The longer the list, the greater the purpose. I became a rote, hollow version of my once creative self. Success was measured by accomplishments each day. I went through mental gymnastics in bed each night, compulsively adding new things to my list. And this is what was, was fascinating. Tasking was my way of healing, but it was a lie. More like my distraction from grieving, my ability to keep things under control. What were you grieving? What were you trying to control? Well, I think many of us use distraction just to avoid pain. So we can go years, we can go decades just avoiding wounds or, or having tough conversations. And it's just the distraction and the busyness that keeps us from healing. And so for me, I think what I was grieving initially was the birth of Cade, looking, my entree to motherhood looking different than I had imagined, uh, trying to be the best that I could for him, um, giving him all the tools and resources I had. But at 26, I was very green at motherhood. <laughs> I mean, like any new mother, you're just trying to figure it out. And I did grow up in, in an environment that really was very, uh, it was Martha-driven. Yeah. I mean, we, we, there was worth that was associated with what we could do and what we could perform. And I call this performance-based acceptance, where even growing up, like, the more I would do, the more that would, like, give me kind of accolation or some sort of sense of worth. And all of a sudden, I realized <clears throat> Cade's looking at me with eyes that say, are you going to love me for me mm. and not by what I can do and what milestones I can meet so that you think you're a good mom? It's like all of a sudden motherhood taught me in, in the moment of Cade's first, like his first moments of life, he basically, it just turned performance on its head and said, no, this is what unconditional love looks like. It's not about what we do. Mm-hmm. It's about who we are. And so that became this new, yeah. like, awakening for me. Yeah. It was almost saving me, showing me that, like, our humanity is not based in, in, in what we put our, in what we are doing every day. It's, it's what God actually instilled in us and who yeah. he created. Yeah. There's an interesting infographic. I don't know if the media team, we can put this up. We found that this was in Forbes magazine. They calculated what is a stay-at-home mom worth. They said, on average, a stay-at-home moms juggle about 95 hours of work a week. And if you look at it, they just calculated it from, you know, cook, daycare teacher, van driver, psychologist. I appreciate that. And they said, if you took that with all the overtime, it would equate to a total salary of about $113,000. That's incredible. Do you think our culture undervalues motherhood? Well, I love that they say van driver. It's like the designated mom car, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Which is funny because we did bring our minivan to Manhattan, which is a joke in itself. You don't see that very often. Um, I think as women, we sometimes undervalue what we do. When we're going around a room and and everyone introduces themselves and we're like, oh, I'm just a mom, you know. It's like we know how hard we work. And yet, for some reason, it doesn't feel like it measures up to Mm. maybe the world's standards of what success looks like, or are we contributing to something big enough? Are we thinking outside our four walls? And I think that is, that's that's disappointing because we somehow feel like because there's not always a value placed on this, we in turn don't always feel a value placed on this. And especially if, if it's connected to a way that while we're doing and serving and loving and giving wholeheartedly, yeah. there still might be something over here that's being untapped. Yeah. And with that comes this sense of unrest yeah. and disappointment. Yeah. 
Let's, let's move on uh, to the uh, second box there, mental illness, because the pressure cooker of New York sure. it surfaced some fears and had a physical impact on you. You actually right. began having panic attacks right. in elevators, subways, and, and planes. And I, and I really appreciate it. Just I want to thank you for your you know, candor in the book, mm. because I think in a lot of ways, anxiety sometimes is like the scarlet A in some Christian circles. Mm-hmm. Like, we can't talk mm-hmm. about that because mm-hmm. if you have Jesus, you should have perfect peace and, mm-hmm. you know, what's wrong, wrong with you. But this was very real for you. Tell me a little bit about what was the cause in your mind. Well, in Atlanta, I don't know if, if people are anxious in Atlanta, but <laughs> we didn't talk about it as much down there. And, and maybe because I wasn't suffering from it, uh, it just wasn't on, like, the cusp of conversation. But in New York or in Jersey, yeah. in the north, it seems to be kind of, like, more prevalent. And maybe we've just found each other because it, now being into this conversation and really having lived it for a couple years, uh, understanding that one in four women one in four women are on anti-anxiety or antidepressants, like medication right now. And that's, that means 26% of us, one in all of our, that almost one in all of our families, if, if we're not struggling from it, we know and love someone who is. And that might even just be nothing more than an ebb and flow. Uh, the longest of winters would, would definitely get to me being a Florida girl. Or, <laughs> or just the underlining hum that says, Am I contributing to something that really is worthwhile? Am I living the life that wants to live in me? Because often my days looked a lot like Target returns and Chick-fil-A playdates and, you know, <laughs> lots and lots of laundry. And yet there, there, I think we're stirred because our creator says, hey, I have quite an imagination for you. Um, are you going to step aside are you going to let go of the life that you control and, and let me lead mm. in that? Mm. You mentioned that statistic. That's a really alarming trend, one in, in four women. number of factors could be, you know, overprescription, um, you know, increased awareness. But for you, you tied it really to a deeper, almost sense, missing sense of mm. calling in your mm. life. Tell us about that. Well, as I was going through it, it, it went for a long time, and, and I know I, there's probably people out here who struggle, have struggled with this for years, and so I don't claim to be a doctor and understand how and when and when this begins and when it ends, but as I was journeying through this, I w- became aware of the work of Viktor Frankl, and he wrote Man's Search for Meaning. He's a Holocaust survivor. He really, in the 50s and 60s, he writes about the beauty of suffering And his premise basically says that the root of anxiety is unfulfilled responsibility. And when I heard that for the first time, it was like, whoa, is there an angst? Is there a tension? Because I know that there's something that God's given and put in me, and there's a burden that he's even put in my midst, and I can't quite reach it. Often we talk about God's will for our life, and it feels just like this abstract job description that maybe will descend on our heads if we're lucky. But it's only for certain people who really have like figured it out, and we just might not know. And so we kind of have this ache, like, well, what does that mean for me? And is there one? Is there a calling for me? And, and so what I was learning through this is that there was a lot of excavation that needed to happen because I've learned... The calling isn't just floating and obscure. It's, it's actually who we already are. Mm. It's like uncovering the birthright gifts that God's put in us mm. and, and living the life that, and the family that he's 
had us be born into and and bearing wounds and pain and 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 the arc of like joy and sorrow all of a sudden those unlock burdens and those two things come together and calling emerges but i didn't know that in the middle of it it was just kind of this tension that goes am i am i living am i getting towards what God might imagine? Am I walking in that? And when I wasn't and it didn't make sense, I think anxiety really was kind of at the root of all of that. You mentioned how your father, you know, really struggled, particularly in his later years, with mental illness. Mm -hmm. And so one of your fears was numbing out. Let me read this quote. You said, whether or not we take medication, we all find ways to numb out when we're pressured and stressed. The extra glass of wine each evening, the nightly ritual of a sleep aid, Hours of zoning out through reality television or social media. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, <coughs> can't relate at all. Um, perhaps you've been in numbing mode so long, you don't allow yourself to feel anymore. It hurts too much to look back into your past, to dredge up lonely memories, and relive your life's saddest days. But counterintuitively, this is where healing begins. What did healing look like for you? Mm-hmm. Well, for a long time, I think all of us, we run from pain. We fear it. Uh, nothing in us wants to stay in a season that's hard. So we'll look for the quick fix or the silver bullet and or the release valve. And and for me, it was going back to Atlanta. I mean, I'd rather live halfway, like just kind of get through the day in Atlanta and then spiral <laughs> in New York. That felt safer for some reason. And so everything in us just wants to, to rush back to what we appear is safe and comfortable and so over a, a season of months, I, uh, it was the, like January, February, the, <laughs> the longest moment of winter, maybe the longest, <laughs> the shortest day, I was in Central Park and I was just wrestling with God and I said, why? Why is there rescue sometimes and there's not? Mm. Like how long will we bear this and what will that look like? And as audibly as I could imagine, I don't hear God, but... Uh, he said, stay. And I was like, stay, what does that even mean? And he said, stay in the free fall, for only there will you find rescue. And I thought, so I'm going to stay in a place that's unknown, that's tense, that's, um, that I'm feel ill-equipped for, because only there was God actually working something out and letting some of these wounds actually surface and letting me confess my fears and my failings and all of a sudden surrender and saying, I need you. I don't want to live a life any longer that I've ordered or that I've buttoned mm-hmm. up that looks shiny and pretty. No, I want to just, I want to cast that aside. I want you to come in and deliver me yeah. from all of this. And you take me to what, what does a life of surrender actually look like? I don't know what tomorrow or next week or next month or next year holds. I want you to drive this for me because whatever I've created just pales. It pales yeah. in comparison to that. Yeah. I like how you identified that social media, um, you know, is a place to hide. It's right. a place kind of escapist. You know, um, Facebook is middle school for 40-year-olds. Um, let, me, let me read this quote and get, and get your thoughts. You said, the technological creations, while interesting for everyone else, have the opposite effect on us. Instead of confirming our worth, they only add to the pressure to perform and strive. When I create a bliss-filled Pinterest fantasy, for example, it may send me to a dreamy place just for a moment, but then I'm reminded that my closet and my decor is already outdated according to the latest trends. So off I go to spend, to update, to consume, and the experience is worsened on those late nights when I need a mental break and find myself watching and observing 
wondering if everyone else is living a better story than I am. Mm. Social media, it just it causes these um, pressures and expectations. Well, we're already outdated. I mean, the minute we buy something from the store. I mean, I didn't realize this until moving to New York that the, like, the, the retail calendar changes every six weeks or something. It's insane. So if you actually wait until it's warm enough to wear sandals, you'll get them like half off. <laughs> it's because everything is <laughs> right. just always perpetuating this like newer, newer, latest. And so right. I think it's, it's crazy to think that, hey, if we redecorate this room or we buy this new outfit, that that, that means we're living a better life. No, we're just chasing, we're chasing this fantasy that says, if I continue to consume and, and manipulate this veneer that's this external thing, then, then I will look like I have it all together, that, my, that I'm yeah. fine. And social media just continues to perpetuate that because we put images up and... You know, and I think it's fun to keep up with friends from a distance and to have this point of connection watching my friends' kids grow back in Atlanta. You know, I mean, it's been great for things like that. It's been great. Obviously, women um, that have read the book are are sending me messages on Facebook all the time where they're just bearing their heart, and it's so moving and so powerful, and I'm so grateful. So I'm not throwing out social media like it's just not helpful at all, but I think we need to expect what what it can do. Mm. It's just a medium that lets us connect, but it's not going to do life with us. It's not going to sit across the table over coffee and cry and say, here's where I really am. Only those in our midst are the ones that can do that, Mm -hmm. that know the struggles that are hidden and that can read body language and, and that are in our lives often enough to go like, something's not right. Like, are you okay? And staying there and checking in, especially for those who struggle with anxiety or depression, we can isolate ourselves all day long. And you're never gonna you're never gonna be aware of that on social media. It's gotta be in our proximate community who are staying put. Like I love um, the power of community that N.T. Wright talks about. It's permanence and proximity. Yeah. And, and intimacy, like those are the things that are really are who you're going to do life with and how you're going to be known. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've often, I've often looked at sometimes at my friend's Facebook feeds, and I thought if my life were that good and exotic, I wouldn't have time for Facebook, <laughs> you know, if it were like really that right. good. What's some quick advice you could give to men and women who are looking to, you know, balance social media in a healthy way that doesn't, you know, kind of we're projecting a certain image of this disconnect or kind of inflame our consumeristic impulses? I think just like stay in contact with the ones that you really do know and mm-hmm. and and reach out and you know I think th- and and also just knowing when to take a sabbath from it and and not even engage it at all I think just yeah. and those in your midst will tell you I mean Gabe Gabe's a good little reality um, accountability partner for me he's like your phone is a part of your arm right now <laughs> like, right it's this extension <laughs> and then we wonder why our kids are so wired for technology of course like they're growing up in a generation that's completely different than what we knew and so I'm modeling for them when they're talking to me and I'm looking down at my phone by not making eye contact I'm Mm. modeling that they're not as important as what I'm reading by some stranger that I don't even know probably and yet we need to be setting the stage for what our kids see as intimacy because now I'm seeing 10 kids lined up on a couch all on their phones. And they're, like, texting the person they're sitting next to. It's just a phenomenon. It's like, well, wait, they're right here. Just say hello. So I think we have to reframe this conversation in the church of what thoughtful adoption of technology looks like. 
the big idea of your book is that your free fall eventually led to freedom, to really discovering the meaning and purpose of your life as, as God's designed it. So to bring it full circle, um, you know, you kind of started out like Manic Martha, mm-hmm. but then after mm-hmm. this season of reflection, you kind of had the breakthrough of Mary, where you really heard Jesus speaking to mm-hmm. you about the one thing mm-hmm. that your life is designed for. How did that breakthrough happen? It happened in a moment of rescue. At the end of 2011, we have a group of friends who go around the table. Um, it's always like a New Year's Eve tradition where we say, define your year in a word. And so I said, rescue. And it almost just rolled off like without a thought. And they're like, okay, we've walked this with you, but unpack that. And I said, for the first time in the 30 years I've called a Christian, I've really known what God's rescue means and what that feels like. Because I've I've spiraled. I've been a type A control freak firstborn. That's like the trifecta of like someone that has to have everything in order. I got to where I couldn't breathe on my own. I couldn't sleep through the night on my own. I couldn't get on an elevator or a subway. It was this death to Rebecca was happening Mm. slowly. I was living a crippling that said, okay, I surrender. Like I cannot do this without you. So in a prayer, I just said that. I was like, rescue me, deliver me. I cannot do this. I can't even take a step. I can't take a breath without you. So come in and and reorder what you would have. And that all kind of happened in a moment. And and for the very first time, I, I really came out of a panic attack right in the middle of it without having to escape. Normally, you always have to escape to find reprieve. But in that moment, that was the very first time that had happened. And it became a new way that I looked at my fear and that I looked at my panic and said, God, you're in, you're in the driver's seat now. So you're not the author of fear and confusion. So take this where you want it to go. Mm-hmm. And, and so as I started to awaken to meaning, I started to see other women, like all around, we all were sharing this kind of burden and all of were sharing the struggle. And so we started, uh, there was four of us that met every Tuesday for two years and we started naming gifts, and it started with Anne Voskamp's 1,000 Gifts, and then we started naming gifts in each other, mm. and then we started naming birthright gifts, and so one girl, she'd put some things in a bowl and mix it, and we're like, when you cook that, it tastes amazing, no recipe needed, I can't do that, yeah. and another girl would throw on like motorcycle boots and a scarf, and we're like, when you do that, that's amazing, like she's a, she's a designer for Ralph Lauren, I was like, okay, I could yeah. never do that, and another girl, uh, she does labor and delivery, and trust me, you do not want me to be the one (laughs) (laughs) helping you deliver your baby. And they said to me, Rebecca, when you put words together, it kind of sounds poetic. And I was like, I'd never heard that before. And here we are, all are in our mid to late 30s, having these conversations for the very first time. Mm. And with that, I really sensed the spirit was just within our midst saying, I want to awaken you, remind you of what I imagined when I knit you in your mother's womb. And how over time we just take on this responsibility and pressure to provide and to kind of go for the major that, that our peers are going for or what our parents might think we should do. Mm. And yet not really listening to God, like what would you have that looks different than everybody else? Because your imagination is that big that, that all of us could have very unique birthright gifts. So that was the first yeah. part of, the, of meaning. But the second part is even more difficult. And that's naming our burdens because that is defined when we go back and look at our life from the very beginning. And Anne Lamott writes in Bird by Bird, Signs of Writing in Life. It's a great book, but I, she says, write 
your life story from your earliest memory. And the first time I heard that, I was like, oh, that's a huge assignment. But what it started to do when I did that was unlock a lot of things like highs and lows, things that shaped my belief about myself, things that shaped my view of God. And all of a sudden, over time, I learned that pain for me came, obviously, the the firstborn of Cade. So I have a huge heart for special needs. Mm -hmm. Pain came when I watched my father have his first mental breakdown when I was 15. So I have a huge heart for mental illness. And then all of a sudden, I'm awakened to birthright gifts of writing. So Hmm. when you use the things that make your heart sing for the things in your life that are broken, that is calling. That is meaning. Hmm. And that's why it's not this like, like very confusing thing. What is it? It's like, no, 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 just go. Have these conversations with your girlfriends. Go through the book with just a community where you have these tough questions to say, what made your heart sing when you were 8, 9, and 10? Mm. And how are you using those things towards the things that break your heart even now? And that's redemption. That's restoration. And that's what he's called us to as believers, to say, put your hands to something that really is is restoring and redeeming and making all things new. Let me end with this quote in a question. You said, the journey towards meaning begins when we unearth our gifts, our birthright gifts. What are those unique talents and gifts that were knit together in my mother's womb, those natural bents that expressed themselves when I was young as a grasshopper and lasted as long as they could until getting squashed? I think both men and women identify with that, that you know, life pickpockets us at, at times with those childhood passions and birthright gifts that God has bestowed on us. So here's my question for the men here. Um, how can we help the women in our lives, you know, uncover and kind of reclaim those buried talents and passions that have been planted inside of her? How, how did your husband, Gabe, support you in the journey? It begins by just giving space for it. It's not okay. something you can fix. I know how men love to fix things. We are fixers. Uh, <laughs> and it's not something that women need to feel like, oh, great, now I get to go figure out my calling too. Thanks, Rebecca. Like, I've got enough <laughs> to deal with right now, you know. Sure. But calling should actually inform everything that we do. It it doesn't change who you are day to day. It just changes your posture where you actually know with intentionality what you say yes to and what you say no to because you want to live in the place that makes your heart sing. Like you want to extend yourself and volunteer or work or give of your time uh, with gifts because it doesn't feel like work at that point. It feels like a passion and something you love. And you want to do that for the good of others. Like you want to help others and and be someone who advocates on behalf of those mm-hmm. that can't. So I think for men, it really just begins with giving your wife space to say, hey, you know, get away, um, have a night a week, uh, you know, whatever that looks like, because we can't you just can't have these kind of conversations when you're busy yeah. with your lists and, you know, being Martha and just trying to juggle. You'll just stay distracted and you'll stay busy and you'll have the same conversation year after year after year. But when we stop and we just put all that to the side and say, no, this is the year where I really want to awaken I want to rediscover what God might want for me. And it's not going to come like just like a bolt of lightning. It's going to take time. I've heard this journey sometimes takes 18 to 24 months. Like when you're really pursuing it, when you're really just like getting with community and and carving out time and space and hearing from God and reading lots of different sources. Mm. And I'll I'll give you guys some other sources down, you know, you can put on your website or something. But I went through a lot of books that just helped 
cultivate this conversation. And so I think that's really um, where it kind of begins. Yeah. Well, we are running out of time, and we've been so blessed by your visit. Can we thank Rebecca for joining us today? Thank you so much for being with us. And today is actually, today is a special day. It is actually Rebecca's birthday. And uh, yeah, so we have a special a little, little gift for you. We want to thank you that you've come and share your day with us. So happy Aww, birthday. Since I have you. been married 15 years, thank so I know you. better than to yes. ask what number this is. Yeah. But happy birthday to you. Um, probably the best present that you can give is really this book. Buy one for your sister, your wife, your mother, whomever. Ladies, buy one for yourself. Pass one on to your friend because it's an important message. And we want to get out there because I really think it demonstrates what an authentic journey of faith looks like. So let me pray for you and then we'll dismiss and you can pick up a copy in the lobby. Father, we're grateful um, so much. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your son who actually charges our days with meaning that none of this is random, that we don't live a life of just busyness and tasks and then we die, but actually we've been placed on the earth for a specific purpose, for a calling that you uniquely imprinted on us in our mother's womb. Lord, I thank you for Rebecca and just for um, the gifts that you've placed in her in this message that you've put on her heart and is now blessing our church and the church of Jesus at large. Uh, we pray that this would be something that inspires many, both women and men, um, Lord, to more deeply pursue and look into that calling and that sense of purpose that you have placed us on this earth for. We ask that all of it would bring glory to Jesus. And Father, we just thank you for being part of your family as sons and daughters of God. We ask that in Jesus' name. And all God's people said together, amen. amen. Thanks for listening to Liquid Church Media. If you were inspired or challenged by today's message, we hope you'll tell a friend. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins.